with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we're speaking with Erin Burke. She is the CEO of Hanzai Solutions, and we're going to talk a lot about billing and utilization review and documentation today. But before we do that, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit ERPHealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So again, we're speaking with Aaron today. I'm really excited to have Aaron on. Billing companies, as everyone knows, are very difficult to find good ones. There are a lot of very, very small operators out there, just like there's a lot of small, you know, four to five person marketing companies. There are a lot of billing companies that are four to five people or maybe 10 on the large side. Um, So you really want to find an operator that's good, that has a lot of data so they know what's working and what's not working in different geographies with different payers, you know, just like the advantage of working with a big marketing company that has billions of dollars of data. So Aaron is going to give us a ton of insight into the metrics around what works in terms of systems and processes and how to think about engaging with payers and reimbursement and revenue cycle management. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have her on is we have quite a few clients that use Hanzai Solutions and they always get amazing feedback. Aaron's not paying me to say that. (laughs) You know, it is hard to find billing companies. And so We've just been very, very impressed with the experience that all of our clients have had with Hanzai. And even when I hear their name from providers that might not be clients, I always hear really, really good things. So her knowledge in this space is definitely one of the top in the industry. I mean, every time I talk to her, she's a wealth of information. Um, But then again, the clients that work with them always report really, really good things, not just from a results standpoint, Obviously, the results are good or their clients wouldn't stay with them, Um, but also from a relationship and collaboration standpoint, you know, Circle Social works really, really hard to be a partner to the space as well as to our clients. It's really important to us that we really see a rising tide raising all boats and that we're all working together to make the field better. And Erin and her team have the exact same philosophy, which is another reason I really wanted to have Erin on the podcast and get some of the, her information that she's got on the space. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Erin, really appreciate taking the time to join us. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and Hanzai? Sure, I'd be happy to. And Nick, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. We're happy to be on. Absolutely. Um. I am Aaron Burke. I'm the CEO and the founder of Hanzai Solutions. Hanzai is a full-service revenue cycle management company, and we specialize in behavioral health. Actually, I started the business in 2016, really just to because the voice of the customer had shifted and people were looking to outsource their um, RCM uh, services. So, you know, prior to opening up Hanzai, I'd worked a little bit as a freelance consultant 
And I was helping people actually transition from a third party billing service to an in-house model of billing and had gained some traction and had a, had a number of projects that were successfully completed. Um, what happened was in early 2016 on the West Coast, there was a, a large audit that HealthNet conducted and then Blue Cross had also changed the algorithms for their out-of-network reimbursements. And suddenly the voice of the customer had shifted and people were calling me and they said, you know what, Aaron, like we're really good at helping people get sober or we're really good in treating mental health diagnoses, but we just don't want to deal with billing. So instead of teaching us how to do it, can you just do it for us? And it was in response to that that I opened up Hans Eye. So we really, you know, sort of wanted to mimic um, or replicate the feel of an in-house billing team where our team is 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 very much um, part of the clinical team um, where we're in everyday communication and we've got just a lot of cohesion there. So that's that's sort of the background. Personally, I am an industrial and systems engineer and I've always worked in healthcare um, and trying to look for opportunities to increase revenue and reduce inefficiencies in a um, healthcare value stream. And I'm a mom. I've got two little boys and I'm married and I live in Tennessee. Well, appreciate the background. And I mean, just a plug, frankly, uh, our clients, you know, both big and small, love you guys. So it's one of the reasons. I oh, really thank you. To... I'm so flattered. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, we, we get the best. We feedback. love our clients. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. You guys are fairly large at this point, right? So sometimes billing companies are actually quite tiny, right? Just like there's a lot of little small marketing agencies all over the place, but you guys work with several hundred facilities, you know, at fairly large scale, you know, kind of similar to us, right? Yeah. So we have grown a lot over the years. I mean, I think one of the things that we realized with the small teams um, and one of the things that I'd actually realized when I was doing those the, that freelance consulting work is I was creating these small islands of billing teams and none of them were able to benefit from the larger data. So the more people that we've been able to work with, the more data we've been able to cultivate and really kind of groom. And we've used that data um, to build algorithms to drive predictive analytics. So I, now, you know, we're working with facilities in around 19 states. Um, we've got employees and <clears throat> I think over 15 states. And what we've been able to do is we're really able, you know, we've, we've got data on about a million claims. So we're able to go through that data and use machine learning to identify trends that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And we use those trends to help our partners strategically grow. So, you know, as a as a byproduct of the growth, we've been able to spend a lot more time and resources in our technology and in our data and use that data to help drive decision making. Yeah, it's nice, right? You know, kind of the more people you work with, the more data you get. And so the more you're able to help more people and just it's a nice little virtuous cycle. <laughs> yeah. And we're then we've got economies of scale and then we can deliver our solutions also at a lower price. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, so let's kind of jump right into it. We've done a couple things on billing on this podcast before, but it's always shifting, right? The reimbursement strategies, the way that payers are operating with different providers is changing. So what are the biggest challenges you're seeing in billing right now? Well, you know, it's an interesting time. So we're today's January 26th. So like this past month has been really focused on identifying what changes are taking place in 2023. And I would say the biggest challenge is keeping track of those changes. So um, a big obstacle that we're seeing that's new for 2023 is we're seeing a lot more geographic restrictions and exclusions on plans that we previously hadn't seen. 
Um, when I opened up Hanzai, we were almost exclusively working with providers who were out of network. That has changed, and I would say more than 50% of the revenue that's being driven by our partners is coming from in-network contracts and um, is basically in-network revenue. And we're beginning to see a lot of exclusions with these in-network plans. So, uh, you know, just a couple off the top of my head that I can think of, um, Cigna has created a narrower network for their their products that are offered on the marketplace, and it's called the Cigna Connect, Connect Network, excuse me. And that is a, spe- a specific contract that a provider needs to have, and it has geographic exclusions as well. Um, we're seeing the same thing with Aetna, and it's similar to what we saw last year with Blue Cross and their Pathways Network. So I would say one of the biggest challenges in billing is keeping abreast all of these changes so that we can appropriately help navigate, help our providers navigate um, the eligibility requirements, um, and you know, for for the patients that they're in, interacting with. You think that's a broader trend? From our conversations with the payers, they definitely emphasize the importance of local connections, local communities of care. Do you see that trend continuing into the future, getting more and more local and more and more restrictions around out of state or going too far away? You know, it's hard to say. You know, our experience has been is that we kind of see the pendulum swing. We'll see that the restrictions become very strict and then they, they kind of take it a little too far and then it begins swinging the opposite direction. So I think there's a there's a good amount of um, yo-yoing that happens as it pertains to the relationship between the payers and the behavioral health providers. So I expect that um, it, it will actually maybe move, become a little bit more lenient and then tighten again. And then, you know, we'll see this sort of back and forth. So I'm interested in your comment on just a general perspective, but what I see in our conversations with the payers is just a couple factors that play into it is one, they truly believe in what they see in their claims data is they get better patient outcomes for patients that stay local. So obviously they want good outcomes for their members. It reduces costs. Um, and then the other side of it though, is the employer side. Cause for the most part, the, the payers client is the employers and employers obviously want more flexibility because their employees want more flexibility. So there's a little bit of a back and forth between those two forces. Is there anything else you would see in there as something that's important to the payers or any comments you have on that general assessment? You know, I, I, it's interesting because we see it from the payer side and then we also see it from the provider side. And when I started off Hansai, I would say that we were really sort of like I was younger and I thought, listen, we're like waging war against the insurance company. <laughs> and that's certainly not the way that I feel about things today. You know, ultimately, we all need to sit down at the table and come up with solutions that really increase patient outcomes. And 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 it's changed and the dialogue has changed. And we are really embracing a lot more conversations around medication-assisted treatment and trying to to establish good support systems for patients who are returning to their homes. I still would say that a lot of the providers that we're working with feel that they're that it's important in many instances and it's very much individualized and based on the treatment plan of that patient. But there is something to be said about being able to get the patient out of their environment and kind of separate them from 
um, the people, places, and things that were that are contributing to their addiction um, or to their mental health problems. And then once they've become stabilized, then identifying how can we reintroduce them to that environment in a safe way. So I do think that there's a place for for both local treatment as well as um, treatment away from home that exists. Yeah, I'll comment on that. I mean, from the payer's perspective, obviously they want to provide their members with a bit of flexibility. But on the other side, they know they get better outcomes when the patients are local. So is there uh, a logic or a reasoning behind patients being able to go away? Absolutely. But they don't see it. And one of the reasons we don't see it, and, and you can comment on this, is there's not good step down to lower levels of care. If you are doing a really good discharge plan where you are reintegrating that patient and there's warm handoffs in place so that they get connected to care in their communities, I think the payers would be really happy with that. But because that doesn't happen at most providers and they're just kind of launched into the community with a sheet of paper in their hand about where their AA meetings are, it doesn't lead to more effective outcomes. And so I think that's an opportunity for a lot of providers and you know something when they think about building out their continuums of care or at least building partnerships within the community. Right. And I actually think that's also, you know, relates to the revenue cycle management partner. It's important through the process of utilization management and utilization review for the case managers who are handling the cases on the provider side, or if it's your RCM partner, like at Hansai, our case managers, that they're working in conjunction with the treatment team and also with the payer to set up those discharge plans. So, you know, the partners that we work with, we have we are highly integrated into their clinical team. So we are the conduit between the payer and the provider, and we're working together to to set up these step downs, the discharges, the discharge planning, and then also helping, you know, set up a successful plan for the future for that patient reintegrating into their, their environment. Yeah. So I don't think you can talk about it, you know, without including revenue cycle either, because it, there is so much involvement with the utilization management team. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you need those components really well integrated. What we're also seeing, and this kind of like piggybacks off of what you'd mentioned about the employees and the employers, is that sometimes the family needs a break. Like sometimes, <laughs> like if we're, you know, uh, we see a, a demographic of dependence on their, you know, on a subscriber's plan that are between the ages of 18 and 26 who are seeking these services. And the family sometimes needs to have a break because they also need to heal. So, you know, sometimes the um, desire to have the patient um, seek treatment away from home isn't always being driven by the patient themselves, but it's also coming from the family. Yeah, for sure. Are you seeing any issues with denials about with providers trying to go in network and not being able to get in network? We are. We absolutely are. We see um, we've actually I think MHN is a good one to sort of touch on. MHN was one of the payers that was. I would say a little bit easier to get in network with. We didn't see as many denials right off the bat based on the number of covered lives in various regions. But what's happened is that now they've kind of they've they've kind of pivoted and they're starting to eliminate providers from their network utilizing the 90-day notice provision in those contracts where they can basically give notice without cause. So we see a lot of times just an initial denial right off the bat based on network adequacy. So the payer will say, listen, we've got enough in-network providers within a 30-mile radius, and we simply don't need you in our network. And then we've seen the opposite where they'll actually accept everyone, kind of see how the facility performs, the payers will evaluate their cost data, and then they'll start chopping people from the network. Right, right. And reading between the lines there... 
it's not just that they have enough providers in the network. They're basically telling the providers to let go that their quality is not good enough, right? Because if your quality was up there. I actually don't think so. So we see some of our, some of the um, providers who had some of the best clinical outcomes actually get chopped from the network. And it was very clear that it was because their rates were high. So the rates were higher than the competition in that same region. Um, we've also seen some other trends. So we've been, you know, trying to back into like, why have these providers been eliminated? And we can't get a straight question necessarily from the payer. And I'm sure there are a number of contributing factors, but there's definitely an economic reason involved as well. But yeah, I think that there are multiple factors. You know, they look at, you know, readmission rates. They look at, they look at the contracted rates. They look at, you know, clinical outcomes, but they also look at length of stay. So there's there's a number of different things that I think are involved in those decisions. I'd be really curious on the uh, rate one, you know, because I guess you could look at it two ways. Is it just that they don't want to pay more because they can get cheaper elsewhere? Or do they feel that they're not getting what they want based on the cost that they're providing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question is, but we can definitely see a trend of, of places that have higher rates are... Uh, more at risk of losing their contracts. That's interesting because was what we've seen actually quite recently, we've had a number of really large clients get denied by some of the larger payers specifically because of their, of their readmission rates. And so the, what's been nice is they actually list it, right? A lot of times they just say, hey, you know, we don't need you in network. Um, but now they're saying, we're not going to put you in network because your readmission rates are five to 10% higher than other comparable providers in the community. And it's nice that they're actually sharing that data and, you know, then you can have a game plan, but when you see something like that, you know, do you, what's your recommendation for the providers if they, you know, want to work towards getting a network then? Yeah. So my recommendation is we have seen this in the past. I mean, we've seen this and not only within network providers, but we've also seen out of network providers have clinical calls with the payers to kind of dive into any readmission rate concerns that the payer has. And one of the things that we suggest a provider doing is take a look at the authorized length of stay um, we do see lower rates of readmission with longer lengths of stay. And frequently the payers who are citing these high readmission rates are, um, we are seeing that they trend for shorter stays. So I would, you know, tr- try to talk with the payer about uh, how the provider and the payer can work together to increase the authorized length of stay and in turn um, see if that reduces the readmission rate. Oh, that's a really good tactic, right? Because you're for, then you can go back and say, well, part of it is because of the length of stay that you're authorizing. We're not able to provide exactly. the that you want. Yeah, that's good. Exactly. And then and then really what, what we could what we would do is we would look at the readmission rates parsed by payer and compare them by payer. So let's say your Aetna readmission rates are lower than your Magellan readmission rates, but your Aetna lengths of stay are a lot higher than your Magellan lengths of stay. We can kind of show that data to the payer. Um, the correlation of readmission rates and length of stay. That's interesting. So another thing that I've been hearing from the payers is they're definitely leaning towards the larger operators now. The thought process seems to be that we'd rather really invest in one quality provider that we know and we trust and see gets good outcomes versus, you know, 15 little providers that we don't have as many members going through or there's not much data on. Have you seen anything like that in terms of where payer preference is going from a size standpoint? No, I think it's kind of like what comes, is it like the chicken or the egg? Because more often than not, our larger providers are going to be those in-network providers, whereas our smaller providers typically are out of network. So we see a correlation between contracts and size of the program. Yeah, you know, I would say that if we look at our payers who or our providers who are in network, 
and have strong in-network relationships. Um, they typically are seeing, you know, lower overall rates, but they have a higher volume. Whereas our smaller providers typically, you know, their cost to deliver services may be higher and they have a tendency to stay out of network or to be a little bit more selective and what types of rates they would, they'd be willing to accept from the, the payer. So I think it goes both ways. So when you're looking at success, whether it's your team or just billing in general, like what are the main metrics of success that you think are important from the RCM billing standpoint? So we measure a number of KPIs and I think they're all important for success. So, you know, the biggest the most important thing when you're looking at a revenue cycle management process is going to be your documentation. Um, the documentation is the foundation of the claim. Um, the documentation is what turns into the utilization review, um, the authorization. The documentation supports the authorization, and then it also substantiates the charges. So downstream, when we're evaluating KPIs for a provider, one of the most important key performance indicators that we look at is the adjudication rate. And what we're doing is we're taking a total count of claims, and then we're looking at the total number of claims that have processed out of the total volume. So the total count of claims that have processed divided by the total count of claims would be the adjudication rate. And we're looking for adjudication rates in the high 90s. Now, if we map all of our adjudication rates and we kind of, you know, correlate the adjudication rates to the documentation, we find that our providers with the best clinical documentation will undoubtedly have the highest rates of adjudication. And it's because those claims that don't pay on the first pass that request medical records are getting processed and paid. So documentation is fundamental to high adjudication rates. I, I think that's probably the most impor- important factor. The other you know, factor that we would look at would basically be more for our out-of-network providers, but looking at you know dollars paid against dollars billed. That's going to tie right into the adjudication rate as well. Um, and then we look at payer mix. And we also look at length of stay. But no matter what we're looking at, it all really ties back to clinical documentation. So, you know, quality in our uh, HIM department is um, is going to be a, the main contributing factor. You know, what is the quality of the documentation? What is the timeliness of the documentation getting done? Um, what is the, what, you know, how is the reception of the clinical team to um, feedback and education for documentation improvement. And, you know, that that's really going to play the biggest part in all of your performance metrics. A lot of really important stuff to touch on there. One of the things that you mentioned was the amount billed versus the amount paid. Do you have suggestions on that? I mean, it seems so wild. You know, I see, I see providers billing all over the place. Is there a recommendation in terms of how much you should be billing versus how much you're expecting to get reimbursed? You know, the fee schedule needs to be determined by the provider. So there isn't like a percentage that is going to fit for everybody. The percentage really become like after we've assessed the data and we've looked at the trends, we identify a steady state percentage that is specific to that provider. And then what we're looking for is consistency and hitting that target. So let's say um, for the, you know, provider A, their target percentage of dollars paid divided by dollars billed is 55%. We're going to set 55% as our goal. Now, provider B may have a different fee schedule and may have a different payer mix, and their target may be 28%. So it really is going to vary based on the provider. So that makes sense. Is there any guidance around 
I mean, do you ever see an effect if, uh, let's say you're getting that 28%, that would make me assume that they're setting a pretty high fee schedule. And do you ever see that have any negative or positive repercussions in terms of how high those fee schedules are? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, I have a lot of hypotheses, but, and we have, you know, support for those, but nothing's been completely validated. One of the ways for out-of-network providers to achieve higher rates of reimbursement is to try to increase the frequency in which their claims are being processed through third parties like multi-plan. And it is, you know, our hypothesis that if your fee schedule is too high, then you will have a lower frequency of plans which are going to hit those multi-plan agreements. So we do have evidence to support um, an overall higher you know, revenue um, numbers if your fee schedule is within the norm of, you know, kind of in the middle of the pack. Um, the best thing that we would do is we would we would encourage providers to look at fair health and to ensure that their, you know, fee schedules are in line with fair health standards. What about, you mentioned the adjudication rate at 90%. And so what about appeals on denials? Is there a certain percentage you're looking to overturn there? Oh, yeah. I mean, we basically look to overturn every denial um, as long as it has nothing to do with eligibility. So the the highest denials reasons that we see are going to be medical necessity denials that come after review of records. And then the other denial types that we see are really kind of, you know, patient denials. So coordination of benefit denials or, you know, denials due to um, maybe not having coverage. So we work with the providers to set up best practices for standard operating procedures to mitigate any patient denials for coordination of benefits or um, eligibility issues. And then for medical necessity denials, what we're really trying to do is get ahead of that with documentation education. Um, So best practice would be to review all of the charts before the claim goes out so we can get ahead of those medical necessity denials and make sure that the, the charts substantiate the claim. And then with appropriate appeals, first level, second level, third level appeals, and then actually going to any regulatory body um, for an independent medical record review, we would like to, you know, we, we, we're looking to, to overturn all medical necessity denials. Okay. And what about time to submission? Do you guys have a recommendation around that? Yeah. I mean, you should never have denials for uh, timely filing. That's, we, we would never expect to see any timely filing denials. Claims should be filed within 10 days of services being rendered. Best practice would be under a week. Okay. Uh, yeah. And the, I mean, the longest, like, I think if you're in network, some contracts will have a 30-day timely filing. Others would be 60 or 90 days. And then out of network, you know, it's pretty much industry standard that it's 12-month timely filing. So we we never see timely filing denials. Okay. And then you mentioned UR, so let's start digging into documentation a little bit. There's so much opportunity here. <laughs> I'm really interested in your comments on it. I mean, because we'll see documentation that is like, oh, Sally had a good day today, or, you know, Sally's upset with her husband, John, like things that have nothing to do whatsoever with their diagnosis, with their treatment plan, right? They're just general life comments. Um, so why don't you just mm-hmm. give us a broad overview of, of documentation, why it's important and what they should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll preface this by saying I'm an engineer. I'm definitely not a clinician. (laughs) But with my engineering background, we've been able to kind of map out how documentation impacts you are and impacts claims adjudication. So one of the things, and these are these are just sort of like tips that I would have for providers. We I would say with every single provider we work with, we are doing 
regular documentation trainings. And one, we want the life things. So if Sally is fighting with her husband, we want to know that. But we also want to know how is that impacting her treatment? Right. So how is it a barrier to treatment? So everything really should tie back to the treatment plan. And anytime there's a new problem that's presented, we want that problem to be on the treatment plan. And then we want to see what interventions are being used to, to help solve that problem. So some good rules of thumbs for documentation and some exercises that providers can do is we would suggest that they look at the chart, cover and like, you know, in your treatment team, cover up the name of the patient and read the group note or read the individual therapy note and see if the treatment team can take that back to a patient. So you should be able to identify who a patient is just by reading their chart. That's how detailed we want the documentation to be. So we're looking for, you know, the clinical observation. We're looking for, you know, what's going on at home. We're looking for a lot of family involvement. And we're really looking for detail on what, so, you know, how the patient is progressing, but also why they still require the structure of facility-based treatment. I love that last comment because sometimes where I see a need for training is the clinician might write, patient shows great improvement. And that's probably true, right? Based on how they presented when they came in, they are showing great improvement. But if that's all you put in there, then that's not showing the the. Oh yeah, if the patient's showing great improvement, then go ahead and send them home. You know, exactly. That's that's what we're going to run into. Right. So you need to kind of establish a baseline. So yes, they're doing better compared to the baseline of when they came in, but how are they doing compared to how they're going to feel if they achieve two years of sobriety? So let's. Let's set the baseline as the target and then say like they're, you know, they're, they're only 50% of the way there or they're only 40% of the way there. So we don't want to always be comparing to how they were when they came in. We want to be comparing to how is this patient going to be, you know, how are they comparing against their future selves? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great point. I mean, we'll regularly see notes like appetite is good. Sleep is good. They're well oriented. It's like, okay, they've been off you know, amphetamines for six days now. Are they well-oriented? How good is their sleep? Just because they're reporting good sleep, are they actually sleeping well? If, you know, we'll see patients who are reporting good sleep, but then we'll look at rounds and we'll see on the rounds notes that they were up three times, you know, smoking a cigarette on the patio overnight. Three cigarette breaks overnight is not representative of good sleep. So it's really important that you're looking at the entire record and that the therapists and the clinicians are not only reporting um, based on what the client is is telling them, but also what they're seeing elsewhere in the documentation. Yeah, it's such a great point. You know, so it's not just say, okay, sleep is improving, great, but client's still waking up three times a night, or you know, shows improvement in overall mood, but still experiencing cravings and withdrawals. You know, so document exactly to the treatment plan. Yeah, exactly. So you know, naturally, I think it's. I think it's the natural inclination of clinicians to report progress because it's their job to help these clients improve and they are, and they're, and they're, they're doing great work, but it's also important for us to show why they need continued treatment. And we need to also be documenting the lack of stability so that we can substantiate the need for, you know, continued structured care. Yeah. Like I always said, you want to get all of the care that the patient deserves and that they need, you know, and so you've got to document well to be able to get them. And we all know that most of the time, longer lengths of stay are are going to be beneficial. So there's usually rarely a reason to discharge someone early. You know, most of the time you're, you're wishing they could stay a little bit longer. Right. Right. Exactly. 
So let's dig in a little bit more on the UR feedback loop. So sometimes UR is kind of siloed as its own little entity, you know, off to the side. How do you recommend UR integrates with the treatment team, documentation, training, et cetera? Well, at Hansi, you know, utilization review is part of treatment team. So, you know, even though we are a third party, all of our providers are working with a dedicated UR that is following their clinical cases from admission through discharge. So I think that's, first of all, really important, you know, is that however you're, you know, setting up your UR ratios, that when you're assigning cases that you're having the same person open the case as the same person who's handling the concurrent reviews, who's the same person who's calling in the discharge summary. The other thing that's really important is that the utilization review case manager should be a part of your treatment team. So at Hansi, our dedicated UR specialists will, they participate in the daily flash meetings. If there's a daily, you know, flash treatment team meeting, they participate in the weekly clinical meetings. It's really important for them to be involved in the management of these clients so that the primary therapist can communicate with the utilization review manager on how the client is progressing, what's happening with them, you know, have there been changes to their expected discharge dates? You know, we, we're the ones communicating all of this stuff to the payers and it's, it is a multidisciplinary treatment team that, that is, that is helping these clients. So, you know, the utilization review should be part of treatment team. So when you're thinking of concurrent reviews and just overall lengths of stay, how also do you just think about that total length of stay? Because sometimes you'll hear phrases like, well, we need to maximize the number of days. And that can be a little bit of a problematic way to look at things. So your thoughts on terms of how you are fits in the total length of stay process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's utilization review's job to be to be advocating for the client for the length of stay that's most appropriate for them. So, you know, for example, this morning we were working with a provider and the provider said the discharge plan for the client or the patient is in residential care and they're discharging to a partial hospitalization program. And also they coordinated discharge for them to enter a sober living environment. Well, the sober living environment needs another day in order to prepare for the clients for them to to become a resident there. So that communication was passed back to utilization review. And then we called the insurance company to let them know what the situation was with their discharge plan that they, we need one extra day. So it, it all ties together, you know, the discharge planning, the aftercare planning, utilization review, um, it all ties together to make sure that the treatment team is able to gain the appropriate length of stay for that client. You know, other clients, we may see that they're coming in and the discharge plan is for them to only stay for 14 days because they need to return back to work or, or whatever the circumstance may be. So the responsibility is for utilization management to be able to appropriately convey what the uh, plan is for sec- success for this client and to be able to get the coverage that matches that plan. So I think the matching the plan is super important, right? I think where some providers can sometimes put themselves in a bit of trouble is if you're getting an average stay of, let's say you're getting eight days for residential, and then every single time you're trying to get a concurrent review to get nine or 10 days, but your average is eight. I mean, do you have comments on that in terms of you know how the payers perceive that, or if you recommend doing UR for every single patient all the time, that kind of thing? Well, I would say if the provider's getting eight days of residential, that they need to really reevaluate their utilization <laughs> review process. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say that in a general in a general terms we would expect to see that at, you know about a week 
is necessary for medical stabilization um, for clients who are experiencing detox symptoms. So we would expect to see, you know, about a week of detox, seven to nine days. And then usually these clients are admitting into a, a program and they're looking for about a month total of inpatient stabilization. So I would I would say most treatment plans that we review, the clients and the families of the clients and the treatment provider have worked together to kind of set up a, between 21 and 35 days in residential, um, in total in inpatient care across detox and residential. And then um, usually that would require us to do at least one or two concurrent reviews. Yeah. And if you don't see that, if you're a provider and you're saying, okay, I'm not getting that much, what are some reasons that might be the reasons why they're not getting those lengths to stay approved? It's going to be, it's, I mean, very rarely do we see that it's a person centered problem. You know, very rarely is it that your utilization review person isn't doing well. Typically what it is is that there's a problem with communication between the utilization review management team and the clinical team, or that there's just a major problem in clinical documentation. Um, I would say more often than not, it's going to tie back to the documentation. The next reason would be the communication. And the third reason would be that it's really a human centric problem. It's almost always a process problem. Sure. And then do you have any specific comments on like medical documentation and detox versus uh, behavioral health documentation for other levels of care? Well, my comment would be that the documentation needs to be very specific and that in our world of behavioral health, the insurance companies are actually the ones who are making their own requirements for what um, documentation needs to exist. And sometimes those will tie in with the state requirements and sometimes they'll tie in with ACM requirements or joint commission requirements. But really what we're looking at is we're trying to say, okay, where does the payer requirements overlap with joint commission and with the state, depending on the state that you're delivering services in. And therefore, what does the documentation checklist need to look like? And that document checklist documentation checklist is going to vary depending on the patient's diagnosis, the level of care that's being rendered and who the insurance company is. So we don't have any expectation that providers are going to be able to know all of those nuances that's why it's so important that they work with a strong revenue cycle management team that understands those nuances and can help the providers navigate those documentation requirements and standards. So let's take a look at that because that I think is important because I mean, we see it on the marketing end a lot too. Providers are trying to hire in-house billing teams or in-house marketing teams, but if they're not, if they don't have a decent level of expertise around those topics, it's pretty hard for them to hire, to manage, to create the training systems and processes. You know, how do you think about in-house billing? Because you guys did that for a while, right? You set up in-house billing. Now you're doing it outsourced. Yeah. You know, so what's your thought? Yeah, so or- I set up a bunch of in-house billing back in you know 2015, and 100% of them, I think, maybe. 90% um, have actually engaged with Hansai as a third party in some, some, some fashion in the last eight years. And it's because they just don't have, they haven't had the volume of claims. They haven't had the audit experience to really understand those nuances. Yep. So, you know, with us, we have documentation standards for GIHA, G-E-H-A. We call it GIHA. I don't know what everybody else calls it. For <laughs> GIHA compared to Optum, compared to, you know, Blue Cross of Tennessee versus Magellan uh, versus, you know, New Directions, et cetera. And 
unless you have a sophisticated team that's processing a high volume of claims and is navigating, you know, a number of payer audits, you're not going to be able to back into those requirements. So we've backed into those requirements and we've actually created, you know, rules engines around those requirements where we're looking at, you know, the patient, their diagnosis, the state they're receiving services in, what the authorized level of care is, what the, you know, what level of care they're in, what service is being rendered. And then the rules engine is prompting a certain set of templates that are required for that patient. And we've actually, you know, been able to kind of roll this into a technology solution that we're going to be releasing. And, you know, by the end of the first quarter of this year that we're really excited about, but the documentation standards for behavioral health, it's incredibly nuanced, um, very particular, and it's, it's really important that you're working with an expert. Yeah. It's always changing, you know, so it does, it's not, it's always changing. Exactly. It's not static. I mean, we see evolving standards throughout even a calendar year. We'll see, you know, even big things like the number of hours required for PHP can change in the middle of the year for a certain plan. And sometimes we'll see it will only change for in-network providers and not for out-of-network providers. I mean, it's really wild, some of the changes that we see. Yeah. So we've got 100% success with helping providers navigate payer audits. And it's really been as a result of trial and error that we've been able to, to establish what these what these guidelines are, what the standards are, and come up with these checklists. Yeah, it's so important. You got the what, the process, but then it's also the how and your ability to execute on it. And that's where a lot of providers, when they try to do in-house, really struggle because, again, they don't know how to identify the talent. They know how to manage the talent because I can't go hire a high school kid and plop him into your process and get good results, right? I still need talented, experienced people to be able to do that. So I think it's really important that providers understand. Yeah, I mean, I would say overall we're, we're seeing a trend. There used to be this kind of like notion that in order for your treatment program to have the highest value, you would need to do all services yourself, marketing, billing, everything. And we're seeing a trend that's moving away from that. Yeah. So um, Hansai, because of our experience and, you know, looking at revenue cycle management processes and being able to value receivables, we are really brought into a lot of transactions and we work with a lot of investment banking teams we're looking for an expert to help evaluate an RCM process through a deal cycle. And what we're finding is that the, the, the private equity companies, the buyers, they want to have the best RCM team. They don't care if it's in-house or out of house that in-house, you know, and, and actually the advantage of having a third party is that it's a variable expense instead of a fixed expense, which also looks nice on a P and L. So we are starting to see this trend that larger places, you know, conglomerates, multi-site facilities are moving their RCM processes out of house because they're looking for that variable expense. They're looking for experts in documentation. They're looking for data. You know, we're starting to see this move toward machine learning being used in payer processes and an RCM. They want to have that level of sophistication and it's just not something that they can replicate in-house. Yep. You guys have a lot of data around the reimbursement, which we touched on already. Do you guys use that or do you guys do anything in-house in terms of helping with contracting as well? Oh, yeah. we um, So our full service solution, which you know most of our providers um, participate in, we do everything from verification of benefits, eligibility checks. On that front end, we're also going to do a revenue projection. So we're going to look at the services that um, the patient's coming in for, what kind of policy they have. 
who their employer is, you know, whether or not you're contracted and we're going to deliver a per diem revenue projection. Then we handle clinical documentation training, um, utilization review, including concurrent reviews and peer reviews, you know, charge capture, billing, AR management, denial management. And then we have a whole team for contracting and credentialing as well. So we really partner with places like our success is based on the provider's success. So what we want to look at is we want to look at like, where is the provider? What region are they in? What are, you know, and, and which, which contracts um, make the most sense to number one, kind of optimize their revenue, but also what fits into their strategic growth plan. So we, we really view ourselves as partners. Like we've got a lot of skin in the game and we want to make sure that the, our providers are successful. For sure. You mentioned ARs, like, uh, and we talked about metrics a bit before. Do you have guide, guidance around ARs and how to manage that or what it should look like? Yeah. So when you're, we're looking at somebody's receivables, we really want to, we're basically looking at them in terms of aging. So how much AR is in zero to 30 days, what's in, you know, 30 to 60, 60 to 90. And then basically we'll have a larger kind of bracket for 90 to 180 and then 180 and beyond. When you're putting your receivables into these categories and you're looking at it, like, let's say you graph it, it should really look like stair steps. We want to see that about half of your AR is living in that zero to 30 bucket. And then it should kind of stair step down from there. And the other, you know, best practice I would, I would suggest is that your receivables, the total value of your receivables should be equivalent to about two months of cash. And then it's really important also that when you're mapping your receivables, that you're not looking at the gross value, but you're looking at the net value. We sometimes have people come to us and they'll say, Aaron, please, please help me. I have, you know, $6 million in receivables. So we'll um, do an audit, we'll assess their receivables, and we'll say, you know what, I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but your receivables really aren't, you know, worth $3 million. They're worth about like 60 grand. Um, And that's a tricky conversation to have. So I think it's really important that providers really understand the value of the receivables that they have. And like, you know, a receivable from 2016, really now in 2023 is not going to have any value. Why? Why Why would that be the case? Well, if there's a claim from 2016 that still has not paid, it's most likely that they've exceeded their timely filing limits on their appeals. So, you know, there's a timely filing requirement for the initial claim, which we would never expect to see denial for that. But when we're inheriting a predecessor, a predecessor biller's receivables, we may find that they haven't touched those claims in a long time. And there are timely filing requirements for the appeals as well. Okay. A problem I've seen arise on the contracting note is sometimes providers get stuck in between the insurance companies and they're being billed for the wrong level of care or they're somehow listed as a, a different provider, a different MP number or something. There's all these little issues that pop up. Um, is there any common ones that you've seen and any advice you have to like prevent, prevent that from happening? I think it's really, I think that it's really like, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like those clerical errors can result in a whole bunch of trouble downstream with the project, with the, with the um, contracts. I think it's really important that providers have, um, are working with an RCM team that is keeping a contract matrix and that matrix should very clearly itemize each contract when it became effective, um, what the annual increases in rate, if there is an annual increase um, what the contract terms are, um, when you know when you're up for renegotiation, 
um, which level of care is covered, you know, which NPI numbers are on there. I mean, it's really, really important to have very organized credentialing and contracting documents so that there, there are, you know, no clerical or administration problems in being able to build those contracts. And then anytime you expand or you bring on um, or you have a change, you know, in location or you're at an additional site, we need to go back to the payers and go through a credentialing process to add those locations. So, you know, managing the contract is a very, very important function. And any error that takes place there has a huge impact on revenue. And sometimes, they, I mean, oftentimes the errors are not the provider errors. They're, you know, ed, they're errors that are internal at the payer. Right. So um, another reason why, you know, there's important, it's important to have sophistication in your reporting is that you can pick up on those errors and say, okay, wait a minute ding, 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 there's a problem. Um, this NPI number, we're not receiving the appropriate reimbursement for Cigna. And immediately we can go back to the payer and say, listen, I think there's a problem with our contract for this location because we're seeing X, Y, and Z tying back to this NPI number. Let's make sure we get this resolved right away. And how often does that take to get resolved? I've seen those things go back and forth for months. You know, I mean, is there an expected timeline on something like that? I don't... No, I don't think so. I mean, you would expect resolution pretty quickly um, working with the payer contracting department, but we have unfortunately seen situations where um, where it has taken months to resolve. It's much more, it's much better to make sure that it's like, we want it to be perfect from the beginning because it's a lot easier to get it right the first time than it is to go back and try to fix it. That makes sense. So another thing a lot of providers are always asking is they, they're like, hey, are we getting good rates for our area? Obviously, you're not going to be able to comment on it here because it's geographic specific. But what are some factors that you see leading to some providers getting better rates than others or getting worse rates? You know, I kind of think of it similar to like applying for a job. Your best opportunity to negotiate rates is going to be before you accept the, the position. And then after that, you're just going to get your, you know, your standard annual increase. So I think that you've got the best opportunity to negotiate high rates right when you are establishing the contract. Some of the things that we would encourage providers to take to the table when they're negotiating include their clinical outcomes. So it's incredibly important that providers are measuring their clinical outcomes for, po- for while the clients are in treatment, but also post-discharge outcomes. Um, we're also going to be looking for their clinical staffing, so what their clinical roster looks like and any costs associated with that, and then also kind of like their cost of operating in that region or in that zip code. So those are the factors that we would be using to leverage contracts. And then anything that is special, so similar to a job application, when you're sending in your resume, what what makes you stand out that's going to get your resume to the top of the list? We want that same kind of information to be in an application or in a cover letter for your contract. You know, what do we specialize in? Are you, do you have, you know, gender specific treatment? Do you specialize in trauma? Do you specialize, you know, in a, a specific demographic? Are you doing adolescent care? Are you, you know, focused in psychiatric adolescent? And then what does the competition look like in your area? So those would be, all be things that we'd be looking at when we're establishing those in-network contracts. And that would also be what we use to leverage rates. Ultimately, we want to show the insurance company why members go to treatment at your facility, how it's going to save them money downstream. Any further guidance on that? I think that's an interesting way of approaching it where you want to go heavy on the initial contract. We say I think that's the hardest 
time for providers. They're trying to get in network and payers are, are denying contracts left and right saying they've already got coverage in the network. So do they have leverage, do you think? Or how do you recommend holding the line on that when you're you're a little bit lopsided in the, the power dynamic? <laughs> Um, you know, I would say that it's not unusual to see about five rounds of negotiation. So, you know, a lot of times the provider is afraid to advocate for themselves and we encourage them to just do it. Like just close your eyes and just do it. Like just, just basically just send the email and we have never, I will say we have never seen a payer walk away because a provider has asked for too high of a rate. So they will always come back again. Well, it's really good to know. So you're saying that there's no point where if you just ask, they're not going to end the contracting process and say, no, forget it. We're done. They'll continue to engage you if they've started the engagement. Yeah, they're not going to say, hey, you asked for too much money, so go kick rocks. They're going to come back and say, listen, we can't meet what you've asked for, but we can we can go here. And we would expect that to happen about four or five times. So I also think it's important for the provider to, to make sure that they've done some market research so that they do, you know, look like they are aware of, you know, what a usual and customary reimbursement rate in their area looks like and what in-network rates may look like so that they are coming in with a little bit of knowledge. Well, that's a good recommendation. And they could come to someone like you, right, and say, hey, can you give us some benchmark ranges for these areas? And they could just kind of pay for that service. Is that right? Or how would they do that? You know, we we would we would certainly entertain a consulting engagement regarding provider contracting, but we would we would typically also want to take a peek at the entire revenue cycle process. But yeah, absolutely, they can give us a ring. Okay. And then what we say, what we do is we we basically just have regional benchmarks for in-network and out-of-network reimbursements based on insurance company. So we've got listen, like this is what usual and customary is for Cigna. Or this is what usual and customary is for Kentucky. This is what the in-network benchmark is for Cigna. And this is what the out-of-network benchmark is for Cigna. So we've basically got three tiers of reimbursement benchmarks that we evaluate based on region. All right. And then I want to touch on the patient outcomes. Everyone knows I love patient outcomes on this podcast. But what's really important here is the outcomes related to that provider. Sometimes what I see is a provider will go and say, well, the research says that longer lengths of stay are better. No, no, no. We need the outcome for that provider. Correct. So there's one thing that the insurance company, and it's not just, let's also be very clear on what defines a successful outcome. So successful outcome does not necessarily mean that the patient has maintained abstinence. A successful outcome, what we're looking for is, how has the strain on society or the insurance company, the economic strain or the societal strain improved since discharge? So we're looking at, has there been any emergency room visits? Have there been any intensive care unit stays? Have there been any arrests? Have there been any hospitalizations or jails? You know, is the, is the patient employed? These are the things that we're looking for to measure a successful outcome. Yeah, yeah. So glad you brought that up because it's really important, again, that they're bringing their own data. At the end of the day, just like we talked about with billionaire marketing, you know, you can have a process in place, but I can't hire a high schooler off the street to do it. It's about how you execute on that. And so every provider is different. They could have the process. They could be following best practices. But if they're not actually able to deliver on those best practices in a way that's effective for patients, the payers don't care. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. Anything else that you think is important for providers to be aware of that we haven't covered? Let's see here. I mean, I could speak on behavioral health revenue cycle management for hours. <laughs> it's a never ending topic. So I definitely think there's a, there's a lot more to cover. But, you know, the key points that I really wanted to make sure that that we covered in this session today really are around the importance of documentation, the importance of data to drive your strategic decision making, and really the importance of, of using sophistication and measuring your outcomes and measuring your key performance indicators and to utilize that to leverage your reimbursements. Yeah, all super important. So if someone wants to reach out to you or to Hanzai, what's the best way to do that? I would say we still, even though we're large, we still have a lot of qualities that look like in-house and the same way that we would want the director or the CEO to be able to reach out to their RCM person. I want to make sure that myself and my team are just as easily accessible. I would say, shoot me a text message. You know, I can be reached on my cell phone number. That's 330-807-4509. I'm pretty much always working and we're really invested in the success of the people that we partner with. And I'd be happy to take any questions or answer a call. So, you know, shoot me a text message and we can get something set up. Well, thanks, Anne. I really, really appreciate all the information for our listeners out there. This is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.